7. Joshua chapter 7. It's so exciting to see folks like Miss Lester able to be uh, with us. I just thank the Lord for his faithfulness and allowing us to begin to come back together as a church family. I know it does my pastor's heart good. Joshua chapter 7. We're following up the great victory at Jericho. It seems like it ought to be smooth sailing. Let's read what happens next. We're going to read the whole chapter. If, if you have difficulty standing, it is totally okay uh, if you need to sit or to remain seated. Verse 1 of chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men, of Israel's men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless... You destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah. And the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now, what have you done? 
Did you did did not do not hide it from me? And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the, be- the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, how often we find ourselves in the shoes of Achan. And God, I pray this morning that for all of us who find ourselves believing lies and wanting to believe lies and perpetuating lies and acting upon lies, that God, today, you would convict our sin, the, the most secret and hidden of sins that's in our hearts, that, Lord, you would bear our souls before us, that we might offer them to you, that we might confess of our sins, so that we might experience your faithful and just forgiveness. Lord, I pray today, Father, that you would come and bring healing to marriages through the confession of sin, that you would bring healing to bitterness through the confession of sin, That you would bring openness to the gospel through the confession of sin. That, Lord, today we would realize our accountability before you. But, Lord, even more than that, we we would remember your offer of grace and mercy toward us in light of that vast accountability. God, I pray for every person that's here that you would convict them of their sin, that you would draw them near to you, and that they would live in a joy-filled, life-giving relationship with you. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I would propose to you that there is nothing more dangerous than believing a lie. Nothing more dangerous than believing a lie. Especially believing a lie that you want to believe. All right, so I'm going to tell you all a story that my parents haven't heard, that that really nobody in my family has heard, or most of my close friends haven't heard it. Because it's brought a lot of shame. It's one that has taken me a long time to build up the nerve to be able to tell it. So a year after Megan and I were married, this would have been about 2008, I decided that what I wanted was an English bulldog. And I began to just obsess over having an English bulldog. It was all I thought of. So I found myself reading about him and studying about him. And, and I would get online and I would, I would look for him. But there was a problem in my desire for an English bulldog. They were expensive, and I couldn't afford one. Megan and I were were newly married. We'd been married for a year. Megan had not really started her job yet. Um, We were poor, like poor, poor, right? Like need groceries poor, okay? And, And so 
here I am desiring an English bulldog, but realizing that there's no chance that I'll be able to afford one. And so one day I'm on AL.com, and I find what I believe to be my saving grace. This is going to be my shot. On AL.com, there is a man on there, and he says that he is, because of a change in his living situation, his home situation, he's going to have to rehome his championship bloodline English bulldog. I think it was like three years old. He's got a picture of the bulldog, solid white, like Ugga, right there, a big ugly face. I mean, like the works, right? And I think, well, this could work. This could work. So I immediately reach out to him. And uh, when I call him, now look, this should have been my first clue. It wasn't, it should have been. I, I call him, and through a thick African accent, he begins to explain to me that he is a missionary that lives in Nigeria. And as a Nigerian missionary, God is calling him to go to a different area. And he's not going to be able to take this bulldog, his beloved bulldog, with him. And so all he needs me to do is to send him through Western Union about $300 for freight. And then he's going to ship this English bulldog from Nigeria. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Obviously, you, a man of great wisdom, did not send this man $300 through Western Union. Oh, contraire, my friends. Oh, contraire. Now, there are obviously bells that are ringing. But do you know what I did? I took what had to have amounted to the majority of our checking account, and I Western Unioned it to a Nigerian missionary, hoping that he's going to freight me a bulldog. So I go and I send the money and I'm feeling good about it. I'm getting excited now. Now now my bulldog, I mean, it's within a matter of weeks. It's going to come in. And of course, you know what happens next. He and I are talking on the phone again. And he says, you know what, Mr. Hill, I think I've underestimated what this has cost. I've just realized that I'm going to need another $300. And I thought, you idiot. Not him, me. Me. Now, I've got to go this afternoon, and I've got to have a conversation with my new wife about how I've spent our grocery money on an imaginary bulldog that lived in Nigeria that was going to be freighted to the United States of America. It was a hard lesson. But you know, the whole time, the whole time I knew it wasn't right. The whole time I knew it didn't make any sense. The, the whole time I knew that there were red flags and, and bells going off and that it didn't all add up, but I was obsessed. I, I was filled with a desire for this bulldog and the desire clouded my mind and I allowed myself, I allowed myself to believe a lie because honestly, I wanted to believe it. I wanted it to be true. Because I wanted what I wanted, and because I wanted what I wanted, I was willing to believe a lie if I thought it would help me get it. The story that we're going to read this morning, the story about Achan, is a story about a man who believed a lie because he wanted to believe a lie. 
And by believing a lie, Achan brought consequences upon his people. He brought consequences upon his family. He brought consequences upon himself. He knew what the truth was, but because of what he desired, because of what he began to obsess over, because of what his heart longed for, he began to be okay and willing to believe a lie because he thought that that lie might just help him get closer to where he wanted to be and to obtain what he wanted to obtain. And here's what I imagine. What I imagine is that many of us this morning are believing lies similar to the lies that Achan believed. We're believing lies similar to the lies that Achan believed. And we are coming under the deception that Achan had come under. And coming under that same deception, we are taking ourselves, we are taking our church, and we are taking our families down the same, same path. Dark path. And so what I want to look at this morning, I want to look at three lies that Achan believed. The first lie that I want you to believe is that no one else would blame me. That Achan thought no one would blame me. Everybody in my situation would do the exact same thing that, I would, that I'm doing. That if everybody else was, was handed the same circumstances and the same situation and the same opportunities and the same temptations, not a person on earth wouldn't do exactly what I'm doing. Nobody would be able to blame me. So after the great battle of Jericho, you can imagine the spiritual high that Israel is on. They had so much doubt. They were such grumbling, doubting, insecure people. But there, before them, they had marched around a city seven times and shouted. And on a shout, the walls had fallen flat where they stood. They had taken a city they had no business taking. They had overcome a military they had no business overcoming. They had shown that they were able to overcome a fortress much stronger than their own fortress. They had shown that they were able to overcome a military far stronger than the fighting men that they possessed. Now, what could they not overcome? Now, what could they not face? The next city that they were to come upon was the city of Ai. Ai was no comparison to Jericho. It didn't have walls like Jericho. It didn't have the, the thousands and thousands of fighting men like Jericho. It was, it was a small, pesky little city. And the spies go in and they say, you know what, Joshua? I think 2,000 uh, soldiers would probably take care of business here. No big deal. If we overcame Jericho, what is Ai? And so Joshua, being the good leader that he is, he actually sends in 3,000 soldiers just to be on the safe side. He goes on the the heavier end of, of the number, and they go in, and do you know what happens to Israel? They're routed. They're routed. Just like uh, Jericho's inhabitants had said that they felt like their hearts were melting within them. The Bible says that, that the Israelites become like water. They melt down. They're not even as thick as wax. There's, there's nothing left of their spines as they cower down and they flee the city with 36 of them dying that day. Not a single death is recorded against Jericho. But here, against the small, much smaller city, you have 36 that have died. Joshua is undone and he shreds his clothes and heaps dust on his head and he begins to say, oh God, oh God, oh God, why would you bring us out of Israel? Why would you bring us through Jericho just to have us be defeated at Ai? What God begins to make clear is that the difference between Jericho, Jericho and Ai is when Israel got to Ai, they had sin in the camp. They had sin in the camp. That they had forsaken the Lord God. 
They had forsaken, that is, their source of power, their source of provision, their source of strength, their source of hope, their source of of courage. And having forsaken it, they couldn't overcome the smallest enemy. Whereas when they had faith and confidence, when they had been obedient to the Lord, they could overcome the mightiest of cities. And beginning in verse 20, we see as God, as God reveals to Joshua that it's Achan and, and that had taken of the devoted things. And he brings Achan before Joshua. And as Joshua confronts Achan and the confrontation of Achan, I think what we begin to see is the pattern that sin typically takes in our lives. Listen, look at what it says there in verses 20 and 21. And Achan answered Joshua and he said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent. Now, there's an emphasis here on what Achan sees, on what he sees. When I saw the spoil, when I saw it with my eyes, when I, when I saw it, it was, it was beautiful. It was, it was attractive. It was, it was wonderful. And this is the case with sin always. Sin looks good, y'all. Sin looks good. Sin is attractive. It's tempting because it's something that you will want. In fact, if you look throughout the whole of scriptures, you'll see that there is an emphasis when it comes to temptation on the eyes, on the attractiveness of it, over the desirability of it, over the beauty of it. You can think about Genesis chapter 3. What does it say about Eve? It says that she saw the fruit and that it was good. She saw the fruit and it was attractive. The, the, the fruit that she ate in the garden, was it covered in spines? It wasn't uh, oozing some gross yellow substance. She saw this fruit and this fruit was voluptuous. It was delicious. It was wonderful. It was attractive. It was good. Think about David. 2 Samuel chapter 11, you know what it says? It says that he was up while the kings were supposed to be off at war. He was up on the top of his palace and he looked over and he saw Bathsheba. And it pleased him. He saw her and, it was, and he found her attractive and he found her desirable. And he found that he wanted her and that he longed for her and that he yearned for her. That he, he saw it and when he saw it, it was attractive and desirable to him. This was the case for Achan. Achan goes in and and he's doing his battle and and he's going and he's storming the the houses of Jericho and he's following through what the Lord has said to bring destruction upon the city and that's when he sees a a, a coat from Shinar, a a Babylonian coat. Shinar is another another word for, another name for for Babylon. He sees a, a, a cosmopolitan coat, a, a coat that was, was desirable and attractive and beautiful, a, a coat that would bring status to him, a, 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 a coat that, that all the people would have very much desired, uh, something that would have been akin to having a luxury car or uh, a Versace suit. It would, it would have been something that would have been incredibly desirable, a, a mark of status, of prominence, of success. He saw it and he wanted it. It was, a, it was beautiful to him. It was attractive. He saw the, the silver and the gold and it was there and it was gleaming and, and it was attractive to him. He, he desired it. 
this, the sage in, in Proverbs talks about this when he's counseling his son. Oh, and daddies, we need to talk to our boys about this. But honestly, we need to talk to our daddies about this. Listen to what it says in Proverbs chapter 5. It says, for the lips of a forbidden woman, that is, an, a, a, a seductress, drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. That is, son, son, when, when temptation comes to you, when, when the opportunity for adultery comes, when the opportunity to, 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 to steal comes, when the opportunity to lie comes, it's going to come to you and it's going to come and it's going to sound right. It's going to sound good. It's going to look good. It's going to be something that you find yourself being caught up in the, the rapture of the moment and the desire of what's going on. And, and you're going to find your heart being drawn to it and your gaze being locked on it. You see, we do a, ourselves a great disservice when we believe that our temptation is going to come from a hideous little devil with pointy ears and a pointy tail and a red face. We, we think, well, I'll be able to see it and I'll be able to know it and I'll be able to identify it and I, I won't want it. You can remember, I can remember being a child and, and thinking, well, why does anyone say yes to drugs? Saying yes to drugs seems like the dumbest thing of all time. As if some, you know, sketchy character is going to come up and say, hey, you buy some drugs from me? But that's not how it happens, is it? No, no, no. It's your friends. It's your buddies having a good time. Having what appears to be a better time than what you're having. Having more opportunities than it feels like what you're having. And they come and they say, hey, do you, don't you want to be a part of this? Don't you want to join the party? Don't you want to be a part of the group? Come on, man, you'll enjoy. And then you say, well, yeah, of course. It comes to us packaged attractively. It comes to us packaged beautifully. But here's what the sage teaches. The sage teaches is that what a temptation is doing is a temptation is showing you a better, what appears to be a better alternative of the future. But that alternative, it's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. Listen to what he says. He says, but in the end, she is bitter and, and she is sharp as a two-edged sword. That it sounds good and it looks attractive, but in the end, in the end, it's a fantasy. It's actually bitterness. It's actually ugliness camouflaged with beauty. It's actually death camouflaged with lipstick. That what it's inviting you to is not something that is wonderful and delightful. It's something that leads you unto death. Something that leads you to destruction. Do you know what people embezzle at work? They don't embezzle money, they embezzle a fantasy. They embezzle a fantasy. They imagine themselves being able to have a better life, being able to live a freer life. And in fact, what they find? Bondage, guilt, shame. Do you know why people have affairs? People don't have affairs with people. People have affairs with fantasies. At home, there's a, there's a man, or at home, uh, there, there's a woman, and, and that man and that woman, you have learned well all of their flaws and all of their problems, and you know about his, his, his uh, shirts on the floor, and you, you know about uh, his, his whiskers in the sink, and you think, you think you have found someone better, but what you don't know, what you don't know is that fantasy has, has shirts on his floor just the same. You just haven't seen them yet. You know what pornography is? It's a portal that transports you to a fantasy world. 
Sin is attractive and sin is voluptuous and it is enticing and it draws you in and it, and it shows you an alternative future. But that alternative future is death because it is drawing you in to a fantasy that causes you to depart from the glory of God. So sin looks good. And sin, sin seems harmless. Sin seems harmless. L- look at what it says there in verse uh, verse 11, there, there's something there that happens. I'm sorry, verse 21. There's something there that happens that's, that's subtle. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar. So, so he calls his, uh, his, his taking, his fines, he calls it the spoils of war. But that's actually a downgrade from what's been called the whole time throughout the whole text. If you'll remember last week, we didn't get to talk about it in depth, but in chapter 6, verse 18, God gives them an explicit command with an explicit warning. Listen to what he says. He says, but you keep keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things. And make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring, bring trouble upon it. That is, they were supposed to go in and all of the city of Jericho was supposed to be burned as an offering to the Lord. They were supposed to only take the silver and the gold and the bronze and they were going to bring those into the treasuries of the Lord because the silver, the gold, and the bronze were primarily used in Canaan for what? For worship. And so it was a way for God to assert his preeminence over all of the Canaanite gods to show that he was a greater God, that he was the God to whom they would answer. And so he was to bring all of these materials into his treasury to to, uh, display his preeminence. All the rest of the city was to be destroyed and it was to be burned. But here, here is Achan taking these things that were supposed to be devoted to the Lord and offered to the Lord and keeping them from himself. It says it again here in chapter 7, verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant as I commanded. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their belongings. That, that in other words, what, what Achan believed is Achan saw that the things that were supposed to be offered to God were too valuable to be offered to God. Does that sound like our offerings? That, that what God required of them seemed to be too costly. It seemed to be too expensive. It seemed to be foolish to let such, such great treasures go to waste. And so what he decided is, I'll, I'll, I'm going to take it for myself. So when he goes and he says that when I saw the spoil, this is his way of saying, it. well, it's just, it's, it's just a coat. It's just some silver. It's just some gold. It's no big deal. It's ju- he's, he's minimizing his sin. He's lowering its significance. When he took the coat, it must have felt like such a small thing to take. When he took just a little bit of the gold out of the whole city, it must have felt like such a, a small thing for him to take. It's just a few bars. It's, it's just one coat. It's, it's just, my goodness, that sounds like my heart. That sounds like my heart. It's just a little money. It's just a few dollars. It's just sex, and I actually do love him. It's just text messages. It's not like we would ever actually act on anything. It's not like we would actually ever let it get physical. It's just text messages. It's just Facebook messages. It's just a chat room. 
No big deal. It's just, it's just me in the privacy of my home. What business is it of anybody else? It's just me. And we take it and we begin to minimize it with the same justifications using smaller words and simpler phrases and, and, and subtly changing it from a sin and an offense against Almighty God to something that doesn't seem quite so unreasonable or quite so foolish. Not only do we see that, but we see finally that sin feels reasonable. Sin feels reasonable. It looks good and it, and it, and it seems harmless and it, and it feels reasonable. Look at what he says in verse 21. He says, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and the 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them. This is the why. This is the why he does what he does. He doesn't do it because he sees it. He doesn't do it because it's there, because he stumbles upon it. He doesn't do it because he's especially weak. He does it, why? Because of what's in his heart. Because of what's in his heart. The word covet means desire. It's the same word. And desire turns to covetousness. When you begin to desire what God forbids, or when you begin to desire what is a good thing too much. That is, covetousness begins when I believe that God isn't enough to satisfy the fullness of my desire. That in other words, what, what, what Achan was asserting is, God, I want a shiny coat. I want a cosmopolitan status more than I want an intimate relationship with you. I want gold more than I want you. I want silver more than I want to have the nearness of your presence in my life. See, the problem, the problem, and this is where the church got it wrong for so long. We, we, we too, for too long place the blame on, on women the, for the lust of men. The problem is not what they see. The problem is when they see it, what's in their heart. It was not Bathsheba's fault. It was David's fault. It was what's in David's heart. There, there was nothing wrong with the fruit when Eve saw it. What was, what was wrong was what was in her heart. What was wrong was what she desired. He, he, here is Achan, and he sees, and he and he and he can make the he has the opportunity to make the right decision or the wrong decision. But what's in his heart is covetousness. What is in his heart is greed. What is in his heart is selfishness. And he sees it, and it brings him into the sin. And it's interesting that this follows victory, isn't it? Because see, there's some of you, and you're buying a lie in your life. You're buying that if your circumstances improved, if things got better for you, that you would behave differently. That if you didn't have the pressure that you have at work, if you didn't have the financial struggles, if you didn't have the health difficulties, that if all the things in your life would improve, that your life would improve. But here is Achan on the coattails of victory, seeing the miraculous power of God in a good time in his life on top of the mountain. And on top of the mountain, the reality is his heart is still bent towards sin. The problem is not the circumstances. The problem is the heart. When you find yourself angry, when you find yourself uh, anxious, when you find yourself depressed, when you find yourself bitter, what is it that you want that you're not getting? There's your idol. So, so here's Achan, and Achan says, I saw it, and it looked good. I, 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 I saw it, and it seemed harmless. I, I, I wanted it, and it seemed reasonable. So who in the world could blame me? I wonder if any of you are buying the lie this morning. I wonder if any of you are buying the lie. The second lie that I want you to see this today is that no one else will know. No one else will know. 
the end of verse 21, he says, Then I coveted them and took them and see. Oh, I'm sorry. They are hidden in the earth inside my tent. They are hidden. That I took it and I hid it. Now, you would think, well, Achan, if it was no big deal. Achan, if it was just, if it was just one coat, if it was just some gold, why did you have to hide it? Why did you have to conceal it? We hide our guilt. We hide our sin. There's a comparison that, that we can draw in our minds back to Genesis chapter 3 and that original sin. When Adam and Eve have sinned and they've realized their nakedness, what does it say? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That when, you're, when you sin and you begin to experience the shame of that sin and you become aware of the accountability of that sin, then the human reaction is to hide it. Is to hide it. But you know, there's, there's another time in Joshua that we read of hiding, and it's a contrast, not a comparison. It's a contrast, not a comparison. Remember what it says about uh, about uh, Rahab, chapter 2, verse 6. But she had brought them, the spies, up to the roof, and what? She hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. Here's why I point that out. I, I show you the difference. You, ha you have Achan and Adam and Eve on one side, and then you have Rahab on the other side, and both of them are doing things in secret. B both of them have hidden things in their lives. What I think we see is that it's the hidden things, the secret things in our lives that reveal our faith or our unbelief. It's the hidden secret places of our lives that reveal the nature of, of what we actually... You know what the difference was between Jacob and Rahab? Faith. Faith. Rahab trusted her well-being. She trusted the satisfaction of her heart. She trusted the safety of her life all into the hands of Almighty God. So she hides the spies in her house. Achan, he thought, I could have more. I could have more. I need more. I want more. God can't give me everything that I desire. God can't give me all that I want. I need this if I'm going to be satisfied. It was unbelief. That the difference between Achan and Rahab was faith. It brings into our minds what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount when he begins to talk about the secret places. He's doing a comparison, if you'll remember, between the Pharisees and the faithful. And what does he say? He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your right hand know, left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Verse 6, he says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, by your, but by your Father who is in secret. That, that the goal is, is that you would offer the Lord who you are in secret, that you would offer a faith that doesn't just aim to be noticed by others and appreciated by others and, and realized in public, that it wouldn't just be a, a public persona that you put on for the friends and neighbors and that when you get back with your kids, they see the truth. No, 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 no. It would be honest before God in the secret places, seeking the Lord, honoring the Lord, making offerings 
to the Lord, that it would be the demonstration of faith even when you have nothing on the line in your reputation, even when you stand nothing to gain publicly from your social from your social opportunities. That when it's just you and God, you look up to God and you say, God, I want to seek you. I want to talk with you. I want to make an offering of my life to you. I want to make, I want to make, I want to give sacrificially because of you. It doesn't matter what anybody else sees or knows or thinks. And the question this beckons in our lives is what are you hiding? What are you hiding? Are you hiding secret text messages? Or are you hiding in your prayer closet talking to the Lord? Are you you stealing time at work or or skimming off the top of your your taxes and not turning in all that you made? Or are you giving generously so that the right hand doesn't even know what's happening so that other people can have hope in the gospel and opportunities that they didn't have before? What are you hiding? What are you hiding? Are you offering yourself in fasting to the Lord? Or are you indulging yourself in pornography on your computer screen by yourself? What's in secret are you making, is revealing the character of who you are? Because that's what happens, isn't it? What we do when no one else knows is who we actually are. I've debated about this story all day because honestly it's a story that I'm quite ashamed of. A few weeks ago, I went to uh, the Kirkland Clinic. I go to the Kirkland Clinic a couple times, uh, you know, like every other month, basically. And the, the parking deck at the Kirkland Clinic is very narrow. And I have a big wide truck, as most of you know. So I have to pull my mirrors in. I'm going and, and find a parking spot is not exactly an easy thing for me to do. And so I, I get, and then there's no parking spots, and I'm late for my appointment. And I, I go to pull in, and I hear a sound. And I think, I didn't hit that car. I didn't hit that car. There's no way I hit that car. And so I back out and and I go and I find a different spot. And the whole time I'm convincing myself I did not bump that car. But sure as the world, when I get parked, I go and I look and I see paint in front of my bumper. Now, integrity move. Leave right then and go and you leave a note on the car with your phone number. I thought, I'm late for my appointment, and I go. I don't have time to deal with this. I don't have money to deal with this. So I go to my appointment. And y'all, the whole time, the whole time I'm sitting in that appointment, I thought, how in God's name could I have done that? How in God's name could I have done that? And I begin to pray, God, please let that car still be there when I get out of here. Please. How am I going to look at my little boy and ever talk to him about integrity? How am I going to look at my church and ever talk to them about integrity? This, is this who I am? Is this me? I go out and the car is still there and I'm able to leave a note. But the whole way home, the whole way home, I was left just with my own heart thinking, that's what's in there. That's what's in there. Nobody would have ever known if I would have hit it or not. Nobody would have ever said a word. Nobody would have ever called my house. Nobody would have ever... I would have gotten away from it and I didn't want to deal with it. And that's what's in my heart. As much as I want to believe that's not who I am, it is who I am. It's in there. And apart from Christ, apart from the submission to Christ, it's the only thing that I am. That's why we have to remember the second part of what Jesus says. That in and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And your father who sees in secret. And your father who sees in secret. It's the reminder of Psalm 139 that you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search my path, my lying down and are acquainted with all my words. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. That to be a Christian fundamentally means that we understand our accountability before God. You can't even be a Christian if you don't believe that. And there, so here, here's the reality. There are no secrets. There are no secrets. You can't hide in the garden. You can't dig a hole in your tent. You can't bump into the car and move on and not have your sin exposed. Who you are is known in the secret places before the Almighty God. This morning, confess your sins to Him. Don't you think? That if Achan, Achan had an entire night before the procession began as the, as the clans were brought forward before Joshua. Don't you think that if, that if Achan would have been able to come and, and confess his sins, that he would have found mercy in God? But instead, instead, he was content to see if his cover-up would hold up. Your cover-up won't hold up, brothers and sisters. Your cover-up won't hold up. Whatever's on your computer history, whatever's in your cell phone, whatever you've deleted, whatever is happening, the secrets will not stand because God, who is in secret, knows all of these things. The final lie that I want you to see is that he thought no one will be hurt. No one else will be hurt. You see, sin is like a bomb. The bomb goes off and the shrapnel goes everywhere. And the closer you are to the blast site, the more shrapnel you take in. And in 21st century America, we say, my life, my morality, my ethics are about me. They're about what I think. They're about what happens to me or about what doesn't happen to me. They're not about you. They're not about everybody else. But what the Word of God teaches and what the story of Achan reminds us is that when the bomb of sin goes off, it affects more than just who you are. It affects more than just what you experience and what you know. All those that are around you, they experience the same. See, throughout the Scripture, we learn about a principle called corporate solidarity where the individual comes to represent the whole. And when that individual sins, it brings reproach upon the whole. We see this here in Joshua's life, in his faith community. In his faith community. All of Israel is a faith community, right? They're all united not by their ethnicity. They're united by their creed. They're united by their confession in the living God. And so he brings defeat upon them. He brings discouragement upon them. He brings death upon them. Look at what it says in, uh, in chapter 1. It says, the people, Israel broke faith. You know what broke faith? God says all of Israel, not just Achan, all of Israel, all of Israel committed adultery. That's what he says. Committed adultery. They forsook me. They were unfaithful to me. They prostituted themselves out against me. Not just Achan, all of them. So all of them have suffered. All of them have experienced death. God has shown that he is willing to withhold his presence over one sin and one person. Over one sin and one person. 
We have a call on our church to go and to bring hope to little boys and little girls, to moms and to dads. We have the responsibility to gather once a week and to experience the the presence of God and the glory of God and the power of God. But could it be, could it be that God would withhold his presence from us, that God would withhold his glory from us, that God would withhold his power from us by just your sin, just your sin. You see, revival won't come to the church because we're focused on the sin out there. We can rant and rave about the sin out there all day long. That does nothing. Revival comes when we get serious about the sin in here. About who I am. About my uncleanliness before God. Where does your heart stand? But not just that, even, even more impactful than to the community of faith is to his own family to his own family. It says that, that Joshua uh, brought Achan out and he, he brought out all of his belongings and it showed that he was already a wealthy man. But, but there among all the things that belonged to Achan, buried, it, coming from his tent was his sons and his daughters. Achan had led them into sin, in other words. When he buried in his tent those treasures, he led his little boys and his little girls into sin so that now, now the shrapnel of his sin would fall on them. I want you to imagine as Israel begins to gather rocks and Joshua sends for the family of Achan as Achan is standing there weeping. Can you imagine the moment when he made eye contact with his little boy? Can you imagine the moment that he made eye contact with his little girl? And he knew that the stoning and the condemnation that they were about to experience was the result of his own sin? It brings into your mind Lazarus who's there in hell and he's on fire and he says, oh, you would just put one drop of water on my tongue to bring me some comfort. And he says, no, I can't do that. He said, well, well, if you would just go to my brothers and tell my brothers that this is real, that they are accountable to God and their hope is in Christ, if you would just go and tell them. Achan would give anything to change. I wonder how many of us, how many of us are leading our boys and girls into sin? How many of us are leading our wives into sin? How many of us are bringing sin into our household and believing the lie that it's just affecting me, that it's just about me? Man, your pornography addiction is not just about you. Those text messages are not just about you. Your temper is not just about you. Your impatience is not just about you. Your unwillingness to be faithful to the church is not just about you. No, no, no. You are bringing your sin into the household and you are leading your family where you are headed. could very well be that one day as you stand there on the edge of the gates of hell you watch your little boy or your little girl follow you right in maybe you hear in this passage this morning you think well I'm so glad that God doesn't deal with sin like that anymore that God doesn't take it that seriously anymore I would say that today he takes it more seriously because he doesn't aim it 
here in the here and now, what he did is he took his own son and another part of the principle of, of corporate solidarity and he made him one person, one individual, the God-man, to be representative of all men and he poured the fullness of his wrath and the fullness of his, of his hatred for sin and the fullness of his forsakenness upon his son so that now, so that now we can receive his righteousness in his place. But this morning, this morning, you have to confess your sins, place your faith in Christ and come to him and come to him. This morning, I've prayed that we would begin a confession of sin in this place. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.